Schools are changing every day. How do we map where these changes come from and gain critical perspectives to navigate this terrain? After all, we are not alone in the challenges and opportunities we face. This is Joe, John, Jennifer, Roberta, and Michael with If School Walls Could Talk, a podcast that helps learning communities gain broader perspectives on their work. Today's episode is about student stress and anxiety. This is a huge, complicated subject that all schools wrestle with, so we talked to a variety of experts and educators to learn more. In this episode, we'll begin with defining stress and anxiety and examining some causes. We're also going to look at what schools are doing, how they both unintentionally contribute to student stress and how they support students. Finally, we're going to check out some new ideas and see what else is being done out there. Let's start with a really interesting interview that Michael collected. One expert that I spoke to was Dr. Niles Cook. He's a clinical psychologist at the Portland Anxiety Clinic. He works specifically with adolescents, but he also works with teachers to help them understand and support students who are living with clinical anxiety. We've been talking a lot about stress and anxiety and kind of grouping those two things together. And I'm, I'm wondering if maybe we should separate them out a little bit more. And could you help us do that? I kind of see it as a continuum of stress on one side and an anxiety on the other side um, of the same conversation. Stress is more state versus trait, which is anxiety, which is to say stress is it's happening right now, but it will dissipate once whatever's going on alleviates, like a test or something like that. And stress is more appropriate. It's situationally dependent, but appropriate. While anxiety is more trait, so that means they're more like character, characteristic or characterological of a person. So there's some stress that is healthy, right? Can you say a little bit more about that? And actually, that's a really good point. So we steal um, some research from sports psychology. Research has found that when you have a low amount of anxiety, performance actually is not very good. So that's kind of like I'm bored, I'm half asleep, whatever, I don't really care. Uh, apathy. And then conversely, on the other end, I'm so freaked out. I'm like, this is the ninth inning. I'm I'm, I'm going to strike out. This is so awful. And we see again, very low performance. But it's that middle ground that's interesting is that some anxiety, okay, this is a big game. I got to get up for it. I got to go. Here we go. This is exciting. Game day, butterflies. You hear in theater, there's a saying, um, no butterflies, no performance. And so it's that middle ground of anxiety, where you have moderate levels of anxiety, actually predict the highest level of performance. So yeah, you're absolutely right, is that some some levels of stress, some levels of anxiety are beneficial. Can you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, from your viewpoint, going to a lot of different independent schools and working with adolescents, what are you you seeing? And is there a, a change or a trend that you're noticing? So particularly in independent and private schools, like I said earlier, um, the nature of it is that there it pulls for this higher demand. And I think that in itself is stressful, whether it, this is pressure put on by parents, whether this is, this is pressure put on by themselves, whether it's pressure put on by the school, by the environment, even by society. You know, we can talk in some schools I know have stopped giving letter grades. And I think that's a great idea. And then I have patients who say, well, I, I have to get in, and you hear these half, like half with a capital H. I have to get into Stanford, and Stanford, and I need a 
four point something. And, and so there's such this, this tie in to this academics. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily a reflection of the independent school. And then another thing that's really struck me, and I, I said it shouldn't, shouldn't surprise me as I have an iPhone in my pocket, is technology. And I hate to play that card, but social media. And when I was a kid, you know, you get in a fight with someone, you yell at them, you get beat up, and you can go home. And that's it. Then, then you're done. Now it's, it's all the time. It follows you everywhere. There's, there's no break. Um, and I think it is so much more difficult to be an adolescent, to be a middle schooler, high schooler today than it was when I was a kid. The pervasiveness of it is so severe. And even if it's not bullying or, you know, cyberbullying, which we hear about all the time, obviously, um, this constant comparison of me to these Instagram photos, which again, these are <laughs> 50 photos taken and they select the one that makes them look the best, but that is, it cuts both ways because they are comparing themselves to all these perfect photos of people and or conversely, they post these photos and then they qualify their own sense of worth of how many likes did I get, how many, I'm going to date myself, retweets or reposts or what mentions or whatever it is, um, where they keep track. And, and that number or that exposure and response is so heavy to them. And, and so there's this kind of measurement, both of a comparison of our self to others, which has always been there, but now it's just so much more prevalent, as well as the, this is me, which is naturally inauthentic, I think. Um, and how does that stack up numerically in terms of clicks or views or whatnot? Well, everything Dr. Cook had to say certainly resonates with me. We at Seattle Girls School, we're just a middle school, and already we're seeing the pressure of students trying to get into the high schools that they want to get into, let alone colleges. I chatted with Brenda Leakes, our head of school at Seattle Girls School, about the pressure students face today. I think that there are a lot of expectations for kids today about um, the ways in which they live their lives. I think life for kids way back in the day was a lot simpler. And even my, in my own childhood, I remember going to school and then um, after school coming home, making myself a snack, getting homework done, and then going outside to play. Um, and I think today's kids are much more scheduled uh, and they're much more programmed in the hopes of parents setting their kids up for every opportunity that they might want to explore. And that, that the expectation that comes with that, I think, um, weighs kids down. As Niles Cook and Brenda Leakes point out, there are many causes of stress, and many of them we can't spot or understand because we grew up in a different world. No matter what, schools should take actions to alleviate stress, to spot stress, and help students understand that stress they're experiencing. One example of this pertains to excessive homework. Here's Niles Cook on homework. I've seen an incredible increase in the amount and hours of homework, like to a shocking level. Hours and hours. Of, and, you know, these are, I, I actually have, right now I have a first grade patient who has two hours of homework a night. He's in first grade. Um, and I have middle school and high school students have four to six hours of homework a day. Um, 
And that's, you know, not assuming that they're doing extracurricular activities or have any sort of life or just want to be a teenager and be a kid. And so that's a big change I've seen in the past five-ish years. What's hard is that homework loads have been escalating across all grade levels, and teachers don't always understand how much time a particular assignment takes. I spoke with Jake Wadnola, director of the Upper School for Girls at Any Right Schools, who has gone through this continual process of discussing with faculty and students how much is assigned and how much time it takes to complete each assignment. Here's Jake. But I think for us, there were points in which you start hearing reports from kids, largely anecdotal, um, about you know, the sheer amount of hours they were putting at their schoolwork um, and realizing it just wasn't sustainable. Um, And even if it was hyperbole, it was still what's being expressed and felt, uh, certainly for us, we felt like there was a responsibility to hear that and begin to ask questions around what we were asking of students. and also look more structurally at what what is what are the the systems that we have in place that might be allowing that to happen. So you know, obviously, everybody usually jumps to homework, right? Sure. Okay, how much homework are you giving? Um, and you know, you can put boundaries around that. But I know at least for us, there were even moments of trying to figure out, well, like, okay, how long does it take a kid to read a page, right? And it's been some really interesting mm. conversations with teachers about having them time their kids reading a page out of a particular textbook to try to gauge that, you know, they say, oh, I only gave the kids, you know, 10, 15 pages of reading, but when you find out it takes them four minutes a page and now you want them to take notes, suddenly what you thought was a 30 minute assignment is actually taking a kid 45, 60 minutes. And that's for our native speakers. Imagine what happens for an international kid. So, you know, I think there's been some response to students letting us know of the levels of stress that they're experiencing um, and then trying to put broader boundaries, say, you know, no more than two hours homework per subject per week, but even trying to deconstruct that to figure out, well, okay. It can feel overwhelming. There's so many different causes of stress from excess homework to social media to getting into the right school, but it doesn't really matter what the causes are, I think what we have to start thinking about as as schools is what sort of approaches we can take to uh, improve things for our students. As a teacher, I'm not always in a position to diagnose the cause of stress in my students' lives, but what I can do is come up with some interventions or strategies to help them deal with it. We talked to a variety of people uh, who shared their perspectives on this matter. Here's Dr. Cook again through what's called exposure and response prevention, which is the gold standard, not what you're doing in school, but for what we do, is you're showing slowly and progressively to patients with anxiety that they can handle it. So I'm not saying that don't have accommodations, don't meet the kid where they're at, but completely eliminating projects or reducing, you know, like, oh, you don't have to do that or just, yeah, don't don't worry about it, don't, is actually not helpful at all. Can we do scaffolding? Sure, you're freaked out about public speaking. Okay, so then why don't we have you first speak with just me and you? And then maybe we can do it, me, you, and three kids during recess. And then next time, maybe we'll do it for half the class. And then maybe the next time we'll do it for the whole class. Or we can do it for two minutes or five minutes and ten minutes and working up to it um, instead of just saying, you know what, no, don't do that. Parents and teachers often want to give reassurance. And that comes from a place of love, that comes from a place of wanting to protect. Similar to avoidance, reassurance is not helpful. Anxiety is often a prediction. Something bad is going to happen. 
something terrible is going to happen or something will not happen. It's, it's kind of this future-oriented talk. So telling someone you're going to be okay, ultimately it's not helpful because it's in that same language. It's you're going to be okay, right? And because of the nature of and it's, and it's a slight kind of syntactical difference, but you're going to be okay is still predictive. We don't know that. We, we just, we don't know that. A, a much, and it's, it's not a big difference, but a, a different thing to say, and it's the same kind of message, it's the same hope that you're trying to help is you can handle it, which is present tense. And you may or you may not get freaked out. Either way, you can handle it. There's been a lot of success found in school systems with something called stress inoculation treatment, which is basically the idea of preparing for stressors. It's just a, fa it's a fancy name for just preparing for things that are going to be stressful or things that are going to be scary. So we can address it. We can let's talk about it before it comes. So what does it mean for teachers to prepare students for stress? At Seattle Girls School, Hannah McHugh, who teaches adventure and wellness, talks about a toolbox approach to strategies and how the students can identify the strategies that work for them. Build, we build in the curriculum that, uh, an opportunity for them to get to know themselves. Um, right. So we don't expect everybody to walk in the door knowing that they are more introverted or more extroverted. Um, but that is a part of the curriculum, um, to, of exploration of like, how do you recharge and where do you find your energy and, and what are some strategies that you can take to, to help you stay engaged? And students were encouraged to set goals around that and try things, mm -hmm. you know, and so some of them, you know, I'm going to journal three times a week or I'm going to whatever. And some of them are like, yep, didn't do that. Nope. That didn't work. I didn't like that. Great. <laughs> but you tried something mm -hmm. um, and we're giving you lots of tools to put in that box so that when you, you know, that way you'll be able to pull them out whenever you need them. Mm -hmm. Even if now isn't the time. That you so we've heard the definition of stress and anxiety, and we've talked about the role that schools can play in student stress. And what we've learned is that normalizing stress and anxiety and introducing coping mechanisms can be very effective. Now let's talk about some innovative strategies that people are exploring to relieve student stress. Some schools have been experimenting with coping tools like therapy dogs and robots. I talked with Megan Kilgore, the K-12 counselor at St. George's School in Spokane, and she told me about bringing in a therapy dog during final exams last year. It was really popular with the students. In fact, 80% of the upper school student body chose to visit the dog while it was on campus. And she's had lots of requests to schedule future visits. So some of what we've done this year um, is look at preventative ways that we can try to proactively look at this approach to decreasing stress and anxiety levels. So like one thing we did, for example, um, when we had finals in the fall semester, we brought in a therapy dog to work with students um, before their test or after their test. Um, when you're spending time with specifically dogs, it actually releases that serotonin and oxytocin in your brain and that helps to decrease levels of stress and anxiety. Um, and it helps us feel connected, um, less lonely, those sorts of things. Um, so it's proven to be really beneficial. So we brought those in trying to decrease those levels during um, like a very stressful time for our students. 
Therapy dogs are one non-traditional approach to helping students take on and process stress. I also interviewed Elin Bjorling, who was a research scientist and lecturer in the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering at the University of Washington. Elin's the lead for a movement called Project EMAR, which is a social-emotional learning robot that is being developed by faculty, staff, and students at the University of Washington and the University of Washington Tacoma. Project EMAR is being designed in collaboration with high school students throughout the region. The robot engages with students experiencing stress, offers a small amount of joy and decompression, and also provides general data for school personnel about the levels of stress in the school. Elon says there's been a really powerful moment when it comes to presenting prototypes to students of this particular robot. I'm, I'm calling it sort of at a, in a casual way, the invitation effect. But we put the robot there, we say this is what the robot's for, and while teens are having this interaction with the robot, the teens that are over there waiting for their turn, we've seen, you know, one of them turns to another and says, oh, they said they were like super high stress, that reminds me of what's-her-name's class, and that other student will say like, oh yeah, I heard somebody had her, And and they start doing this sharing of like, speaking of high stress, here's my experience related to this. And um, at least on one occasion, a teacher said, those two students never talk to each other. Like, I'm so surprised this conversation is happening in this way. And granted, a robot's a weird thing. Um, But I like to think of that as if we can get that effect by dropping a robot into a room, that the robot represents something. It represents an invitation of, we're going to do things differently now. The robot wants to hear about stress. Let's, let's just move into a culture of talking about stress. Um, so what are some of the other things we could drop into an environment that would provide that same kind of invitation? Um, and one of the things that we do often, we've done it in high schools. High schools have done it themselves. And then we've also done it at our like public events is what we call a stressor calmer board where it's just a whiteboard and then there's post-its where you can write down things that are stressing for you and things that are calming for you. Um, And we did that as a data collection tool uh, just to take a look at sort of, you know, what's stressful and what's calming for teens at this point and how diverse are the stressors and calmers and things like that. But I think when you when you do something like that you intentionally create a space for sharing and even that can be anonymous you can just write something down and stick it on the board but i wonder if even something as simple and low fidelity and low cost as that as creating a space to just suggest that this is what we're welcoming people to start talking about You know, I think we're very far away from having robots in every classroom, but I think what's raised here is that uh, this is creating a space for uh, stress and anxiety to come out of the shadows. I agree. It's definitely not about therapy dogs and robots in every classroom, but it's it's about starting conversations about stress to normalize it, something, something we all experience. Um, and it's about using tools like scaffolding to help kids navigate those experiences. One thing that I thought was really interesting is when Dr. Cook said that um, instead of using a phrase like, you're going to be okay, to use phrases like, you can handle it. That felt very powerful. And as a teacher, that's something I can start using in my classroom today. Ultimately, we hope this podcast will spark conversation and action. 
See our discussion guide for other questions and topics to ignite movement with your own community.